Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can turn to any page of the Bible for we're told that all scripture is, is profitable and useful for teaching, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Lord, even the events that we have been looking at and recently, Paul says to the Corinthian church, were written down as a warning and example for, for us, on whom the, the fullness of the ages have come. And Lord, we pray that we might learn from the warnings and both the examples that we see uh, in the scripture this morning. Lord, we pray that we would be changed as we see something more of your character, your, your love and your care towards us, but also some of your warnings that you, you bring before us how we might love and serve you with our whole heart. So Lord, we pray for the working of your spirit, both in, uh, in, through me as I speak, but also in all of us, myself included, as we hear your word explained, of the Lord, that we might encounter with the living God and we might be changed by the living God for the glory of his name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm pretty sure I've used this illustration before, but it's still a good one to just where we're going for. Anyone who knows me knows that me and height's not a good match. The older I get, the worse it seems to get. And probably the biggest and most significant moment that I remember was a holiday to America in 2012, and Sarah and I used to do a lot of hiking before we had kids and didn't have to carry them. Um, and so we were at Yosemite National Park, we'd done a number of hikes, and we, there was one we were going to do where they take your bus right up to a really high place, and then you hike all the way down into the valley. Now, when you're up at these really high altitudes, you've got these spectacular views. But one of the reasons why you have such spectacular views is because a lot of this walk, you are right on the edge where there is a massive, big drop off to the side. Now, that being said, I need to say there was a fence like a stone fence about this high, even though there was a huge, huge drop there. And we all know that a fence is designed to, to protect you. But something in my head says, unless the fence is up to about here, what if I trip? You know, things could not work out well. And so in the little childish moment, this very grown man, who's kind of convinced I'm not going down this part, his wife ends up having to hold his hand. She walks on that side oh, and, just, and kind of working way through. There was something in my head that says, I'm not going down this track any other way unless someone guides me, someone protects me. It's a bit embarrassing, but it's the truth. But as we've gone through the book of Exodus so far, we've seen the unfolding of some of God's promises that after they were in the, the land for 430 years of Egypt, that he would deliver them out, that he would call them to be a people to himself and he would bring them into the promised land. So far we've seen them brought out of, out of Egypt. But now after giving them the laws of how they are to live in the land that we looked at last week, today he looks at how he's going to bring them into the land how he himself will be leading them, guiding them and protecting them, how he is guaranteeing and assuring of bringing them to that final destination. It's a little bit funny at this point in time as we've been preaching through the book of Exodus. We've got four sermons to go till we finish the series, yet we've got 16 chapters to go. And next week we're not even doing a large portion either. So it'll actually turn out that in the last three weeks we'll be covering 15 chapters. Um, but no, that doesn't mean they'll be massively long sermons. But one of the things we saw last week, 
after the Ten Commandments were given, we saw the first civil laws given by God to the people saying, these are the laws that will govern how you live when you come to dwell within the land. We saw that essentially they were summed up the way that Jesus just sums up the law. It says they hang on the idea of loving God and loving your neighbour. They talk about, and they had the bookends of how to bring right and proper worship to God. And in between that was how to treat one another. How to not desire to see any loss for any of your brothers and sisters, whether they be poor, whether they be a slave, whatever it is, to see someone's loss and actually desire to bring about their restoration and their good. The rules themselves weren't a fun read. There was some weird and there was some interesting stuff. But we saw the wonderful justice of God. We saw the wonderful care of God towards his people. That he would see no joy in any loss, anyone being mistreated, but desiring the benefit for all. It was very common in ancient covenants and also biblical covenants. Where covenants were given, there was often conclusions where obedience to the covenant resulted in certain benefits, whereas disobedience or rebellion often suffered certain consequences. And today this is kind of like the end section of what we looked at last week, where it talks about the nature of what happens if one is obedient and what happens to those people if they are not obedient. Sort of structure of where we're heading this morning is more than a guardian angel. Who is this this angel that is spoken of who's introduced right in the opening verses? The blessing of obedience, the snares of this world, And then we wrap it up by looking at what does it mean to joyfully journey with God for us today? Because we spoke about last week, the Book of the Covenant, a set of lists of rules for things that would govern how they are to conduct themselves when they come into the promised land. Something had been promised all the way back to, to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. But the big question that would be in their mind is, how do... A people go in and occupy a land that is already heavily populated. And here we see God's presence, his leading, his protection, and he's bringing them to that place. He says, I will provide my angel to do these things for you. It's not the first time we've seen angelic presence in the, in the pinnacle moments of redemption throughout the book of Exodus. Go back to Exodus chapter 3, you see it was an angel who appeared to Moses from the burning bush, calling him to that that wonderful mission in which he had. We see the angel that passed over at that very first Passover while in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 14 verse 19, it was an angel who encamped around the people who led them through the waters of the Red Sea to bring them out of Egypt. And throughout every single one of those occasions, people asked the question of, Who is this angel? Now, while the Bible doesn't give specific answers on any of those occasions, there are some things we can look at that we notice amongst them. Some people say, well, God's presence was with his people by the form of a a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire at night. Maybe it was that. But what we see here in Exodus 23 is not an inanimate object like a cloud. It is something which has a voice which speaks and which God says you are to listen to and to obey. But there are some very close connections between whoever this angel is and God himself. 
Some, but at the same time, there are distinctions made. Like in Exodus 23, it says, God saying, I will send my angel. We see something with a close tie too, but a distinction at the same time. In Exodus 3, it says, an angel appeared to Moses from the burning bush, but it says later that it was God who spoke to Moses through the burning bush. If we look at it today in verses 21 and 22, we see these things said of the angel where we'll see some of the close ties and identification with God himself. Where it says, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I'll be an enemy to your enemy and an adversary to your adversaries. Now there's some things in there that that are the domain of God himself. The idea of forgiveness of sins, Mark 2, 7 says God alone can forgive sins. But no, too, it says that his name, God's name, is in him. We see a very close tie between obeying the voice of this angel is listening to the very word of God itself. So there's that close connection, but at the same time there's a, there's a distinction. For that reason, there have been some, because the word angel in Hebrew basically means messenger, to think, well, it's, it's Joshua. Joshua brought them into the, to the promised land. Joshua brings and speaks the word of God to them. And because Joshua in Hebrew is the equivalent of the name of Jesus, it could be said in that sense that it was Jesus, that it, that it was Joshua. But there seems to be something more than even just that. There's such a close identification to the very nature and character of God leads some to the conclusion that it's actually a pre-incarnate form of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Now, as much as I like that idea, and I'd love to say that's what's most likely, the scripture isn't that specific to, to nail that down. But whether that is the case or not, one thing which is abundantly clear This angel's role certainly foreshadows and points us to the very saviour of Jesus Christ. The primary role is spoken about here in verse 23 is an angel who will bring them into the land. The angel who goes before you and brings you into the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Because God has promised them already. Back Genesis chapter 15... I will bring you into the land of these people. And this God just didn't say, I promise this, go figure it out for yourself. The God who promises is the God who leads, the God who is with them to provide the very things that he promises. The angels described here in Exodus 23 as the one who guides his people, who leads them, who speaks to them. The one to which God says, listen to him, be obedient to him. We've mentioned already that when it comes to biblical or ancient covenants, there were always blessings for those who were walking in obedience and there were consequences for those who would rebel. And both for the Israelites and for us today, the greatest blessings will always be found in close connection with obedience and walking in obedient relationship with God. You know that old song? Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. We don't need to sing it and you'll be glad that I didn't. Because there is a very close connection. Redemption leads to obedience. 
to a people who have been saved, the natural to go with that is that we should obey the one who has saved us. They should go hand in hand. These things are being written to a people who have been graciously redeemed out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And they are being called to obey. So as we look at the blessing of obedience, our second point, there's a few things we need to say before talking about these verses. Context is important. I know I've said this many, many times, but context is extremely important. You cannot just pick up these verses and say, these are general principles for all time to which we all must adhere. These instructions that are given in these verses are specific to a people who are about to enter into the promised land. They are blessings and the curses for those people as they are going in to enter that land. And as a result of this, you don't want to make silly conclusions, particularly with regards to obedience and disobedience, based on these verses. As though a way of saying, if you do this, God will do this. Or, or if these things are happening in your life, that it must be because you are being disobedient to God. Because all of these things, throughout the rest of the scripture, we see this is not a standard for all time. Remember when we had some visitors a number of weeks ago, it was Kyle and Rachel. I think it was when Samuel was preaching um, and he preached from Ephesians chapter 2. I think one of the first questions Kyle asked me was, are you preaching the following verses after that next week? Because they understood that the best way to understand Scripture is to put it in its right context. When you just pick things left, right and centre, you can make all sorts of wrong conclusions. And that's one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible. I'll give you two key reasons why we preach through books mainly. We do topical series sometimes, from start to finish, is that it saves us from making wrong interpretive mistakes because we know where they fit in, we know where they're coming, we know the context to which they are written. And certainly because it models a good habit of reading for us as a church. That our reading habit should be to do the same thing, to read through books of the Bible, to understand their context, rather than just pick things left, right and centre. But to come back to Exodus, the promises that were for obedience were great, that were promised. It says, You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread, your water. He will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will fulfil the number of your days. Now, I've heard people take this and say, These are rules for all time. Basically saying that if you're sick, it's because you're disobedient to God. That's not a connection the New Testament makes. Not a connection the rest of the scriptures make. It's not a principle for all time. Nor do you turn to someone and say because they're barren or because they miscarriage, it's because disobedience to God. We have corrupted things in our life because we live in a world that is corrupted by sin in every way. Again, these are specific to a specific occasion that God is promising in connection to what he said beforehand. But doesn't it sound good to walk in obedience? You'll never be lacking for food or for drink. You'll never have sickness. There'll be no barrenness, no miscarriage. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? How good does this sound? The opportunity to be walking in close relationship with God Walking in obedience when everything he's given, because he's our creator, is actually, he knows what's best for us. So to walk in obedience is even good for us in and of itself. And we get all of these benefits, well, the Israelites get all of these benefits if they do it. 
yet they don't. It says something about the corrupt nature of human beings, doesn't it? To be promised all these wonderful good things and to hear that, to know that the almighty God is the one who's declared these things to you and they turned away from it. Why would you? The all-powerful God who, who commands things for what is best for us. It's a little bit like Adam and Eve, isn't it? They had everything. Perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another. Everything, all except for can't eat from one tree, fruit from one tree. Let they and everyone after them. We've asked that question, is God good? Maybe, maybe there's a better way. Maybe I, can, maybe I can be the one who calls the shots. We want to be God. Now I know in Exodus 23 we're talking about a specific occasion, but I think it's worth dwelling on the point that there is a connection between obedience and blessing. We need to clarify by what we mean by that. We need to be really careful what we say. We obey God primarily because he is worthy of our worship. If he has rescued us from sin and death, if he is our creator to whom we rightly belong, he is worthy of our obedience. His worthiness should be our our reason why we're obedient to him. Not just because there could be some benefits if we do. It's not like when I go down to the shops, and now Miller loves to come to the shops when I go down uh, for visitors. Miller's my now, as of yesterday, three-year-old daughter. And we'll be going around, she'll be there in the trolley, we'll be buying things down at the shops, and there'll come a point when she says, Daddy, I've been good. Now, in her mind, she knows there's been other times when we've been to the shops, and because she's been good, we said, oh, we'll get you this because you've been really, really good. And she thinks... Daddy, did you notice? I've been good. I've done something. Therefore, you should do this in response. That's not how we should think about walking in obedience with God, that we do it in order to get something or somehow to twist his arm saying, God, did you, did you notice what I've done? God's blessing is never earned by our obedience. However, Because all of his commands are a reflection of his nature. All of them, just by their very nature, are good and joyous and are blessing themselves to walk in obedience with them. So there's a blessing in self just by walking in his commands because they're all for our good. That being said, our God delights in blessing the obedient. You can't forget the words of Jesus said, to the one who's been trusted with, with little, I will give more. But as we go back to Exodus 23, not all of these blessings depend on obedience. God has promised back all the way to Genesis 15, they say, I will bring you into this land. God has sworn this as an oath, as part of his covenant. His very own nature, his very own reputation depends upon him carrying out what he promised to do. And as we look at verses 29 to 31, we see it is not dependent upon their skills. Just like their salvation wasn't dependent upon their, because they were so much worthy of it, more than any other nation. Speaking of bringing him into the land, we see these. 
God speaking, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land should become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. So God has promised, but it comes with the very power of God to actually achieve, to deliver what God has promised. He will drive them out. But unlike what we might expect, he says, it's not going to happen quickly. The Bible doesn't give a time frame, but he says, it's not going to happen within a year. And you might think, oh, that's not very fair. God, just give it to him. You, you got him out of Egypt so quickly. Why can't you just bring him in like that? And it says something of the gracious, caring nature of our God. He gives the reason why he allows it to be a slow, progressive thing. Now, the land of the Canaanites, they were a massive number, far greater in number than the Israelites. The land was bountiful and fruitful. And if there's so little people to tend for it, the wild beasts are going to accumulate in great number and take over. It was for their good that he delivered them from their enemies slowly. But in the midst of all of the good news, there was also some serious warnings about the snares of the world into which they were entering. One thing we've seen repeated right from going back to the Ten Commandments, we saw it come up time and time again last week as we looked at the, the, the majority of the rest of the, the Book of the Covenant, was this reminder, do not go and worship other gods. Do not have other gods instead of me. Do not have other gods as well as me. Do not be tempted to go into their ways. We see it in this chapter in verse 24, but also sort of summarised in verses 32 and 33. God says, you shall not make covenant with them and their gods. You shall not dwell in, you shall, sorry, they shall not dwell in your land, lest you make them sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely, it will surely be a snare to you. God knew the, the, the weakness of the human heart being corrupted by sin. He knew that when they go into the land, the presence of these other things will surely lead them away from wholehearted obedience to God. So he kept reminding, when you get there, it says you need to drive them out completely and you need to drive out their religious activities completely because they will be a snare to you. Don't kid yourself. Now, part of us wants to think, wouldn't it just be easier to go in they were there first, be nice to them, work around them. That's not going to affect them. Don't we try and justify that all the time? You know, these, these things, they, they're not going to affect me. I'll, I'll have them around me. They, they don't affect my relationship with God. God says, they've got to go. And even some of the things that don't sound or appeal so naturally to us, we know all things God commands for their good. Sadly, historically though, the Israelites never entirely brought all of the people and their religious practices out of the land. They thought, nah, we'll just, we'll just work with what we've got. Close enough's good enough. And throughout the Old Testament we see them intermarrying with the Canaanites. 
We see them constantly being rebuked and punished for their association with the Canaanite religions. God knew what was very much in their heart. The one who knows, the one who created says, I warn you in advance, this will surely, definitely be a snare to you. Aren't we stupid sometimes? When we say, ah, God, I know you said that, but I reckon I can do this. How much better would their life be, and I'll tell you what, how much better would my life be if I actually took God at his word? If I actually believed when God warned me against something that that was to be taken seriously? When God called me to something, that's to be taken seriously? His command to the Israelites as they're going to the land, don't kid yourself. These things will hinder you in your relationship with me. Get rid of them. But while these things are specific to them in their situation, we need to remember that Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, these things are written as an example and as a warning to us on whom the fullness of the ages have come. And in both the blessings and in the warnings, there's a lot here for us to ponder and to apply this morning. There's an extent to which their situation is a little bit like ours. They have been redeemed, they've been saved out of Egypt. They're on their way to their final resting place within the land. But in between, here they are in this in-between stage. Just as we have been saved by the wonderful work of Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, but we are not yet in our final everlasting rest in in our eternal presence with him, we are still struggling to, to defeat and to cast out the things which wage war against us. What was spoken of the angel is the angel would guide, protect, slowly drive out the enemy and bring them into the final rest. Jesus has saved us. Jesus has promised that he is taking us to be with him. But he's also promised many things that we see in close connection as why he said that before, that the angel, whether it is a, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ or not, it certainly points very clearly to Jesus and his ministry. Jesus himself was one too who speaks the very word of God. Just like the angel, he was one whom God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He's the one who leaves us out of slavery to sin and death by his death and his resurrection. He is the one who, who after his resurrection says, I have been given all authority, go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all I have commanded you. Behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. He promised his presence with his people right from then till the very end of the time to guide us, to lead us, to protect us, to to guide us to be all we're meant to be and to lead us to himself. Remember when Jesus' disciples have a conversation with Jesus and Jesus says, I'm returning to the Father. And the disciples say, how do we get there? Show us the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And between that that salvation and our final destination, it is through Christ's work within us who is delivering and casting out the things that continue to wage war against us. And he will bring us to that final everlasting rest.
One of the sad things I find that when people read a passage like Exodus 23, they say, if only we had an angel or something like that doing those things for us. Yet they forget and overlook the fact that the very fullness of God by his spirit dwells within every single one of God's children. God doesn't just save us and say, figure it out for yourself. He is at work to guide, to protect, to deliver a people to that final destination. He's working within us to deliver us from the things that wage war against our soul. Matter of fact, one of the distinctive marks of being a child of God, according to Romans 8, is that you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Now, it should be noted with regards to Israel, any time they went out to wage war against the Canaanites, when they decided to do it, they decided to do it in their strength, every time they failed. And you know what? When we try to deal with our old fleshly nature in our own strength, we find we're not much better than we were beforehand, were we? We need to depend upon God. He is the one who's doing that work. But so frequently we get defeated. I hear people say, I just can't do this one. And much to their disappointment, I say, good. But he can. Good you finally realise that you can't do it. But something else I think we need to hear is we look back and we see comparison to the experience of Exodus 23. When they went into the land, did he remove all of the Canaanites immediately? He did it slowly. It was somehow for their good that that was a slow progress of removing the things that were going to be a hindrance to them. So take heart. Sometimes God, because of what good plan he has, is not removing everything within us straight away, as much as at times we thoroughly wish he would. Now, I wish on January 9, 1996, perfect holiness and Steve Adams, that was the day I came to know Christ for the record. But for his good plan and for his glory, it is a slower process. Do not give up on a particular sin just because it's been a lengthy battle and say, this is never going to happen. But always remember that you have a helper who is journeying, guiding with you. One who has promised to be with you to the end of the age. The one who desires to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The one who's promised in Philippians 2.13 who is at work to will and to work that which is pleasing to God. You're never alone in the Christian life. The one who saves you is the one who will lead you home and who's working within you day by day. But you need to trust in him, not trust in yourself. But there's also some important things to reflect upon in the warnings that we see in this passage. God gave some pretty clear instructions when they went into the the land. Time and time again, he told them, do not have anything to do with their religious practices. Do not emerge yourself in their culture. It will definitely be a snare to you. It's probably another time I need to say, this is not a verse to be taken to say, as Christians have nothing to do with anyone but Christians. That is not what the scripture is teaching. What it's saying is, do not get so heavily involved, or as James put it, to love the world is to be at enmity with God. To love the values and characteristics of this world 
is to put yourself in hostility towards God. It doesn't mean that you don't have friends who are, in, who are unbelievers. Not to love and conform to the world's values. But how did God speak to the Israelites as they go into the land? Do you say, when you see these things, just don't pay any attention to them. You just do your own thing. You focus on me. He said, smash them completely. Utterly destroy their pillars. These things will be a hindrance to you. You need to get rid of them. You don't want anything standing between you and your relationship with God. He knew the temptation was too great. He said the only thing that would safeguard them was complete removal. And it's a challenging thought for us, isn't it? We're not going into a land, we're not going into a land with religious, all sorts of things. But are there things that we encounter on a daily basis that are a hindrance to us having right relationship with God and walking with him? Are there some things that that God would be saying, just like he said to the Israelites going to the land, get rid of them completely. Don't fool yourself. These will be a very real snare to you in your relationship with God. Might be a place. Might be a person. It might be an activity. Now this isn't about setting particular laws. This is talking about personal conviction here. You know what things that might be perfectly good things in and of themselves that might actually be an utter hindrance in your relationship with God and to apply that principle, the best thing for you to do is say goodbye. I don't want this in my life. Now I'm not speaking to us as being the the world's most wicked people. This applies every bit as much to this man standing up the front. And what I want to take as we sort of wrap up this morning is we're going to have a quiet time to bring before God in prayer. If there are things that God has laid on our heart that are a hindrance in our relation to him that just keep coming back, standing in the way, that we will come before him and ask him that never again. We're not going back there. And maybe after church, find someone you, that you know and trust to sort of share with and think about ways you're going to, to implement that. But as you do that, also always remember, the one to whom is your saved, the one who is leading you to your final rest, is the one who is with you and who wills and works to do these things that are pleasing to God. So I'll leave it open for a quiet time of prayer where you are to uh, give thanks for his presence with us, but also to uh, if there be hindrances that we uh, need to deal with before him.